Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Watts Radio. I'm Jeff. And I'm Hanji. And we'll be your hosts for this hour. This week on Watts Radio, we discuss biofuels and how to make them with Professor Nathan Parker from Arizona State University. He's joining us in the studio. It's exciting. It is super exciting. In addition to everything you never wanted to know about biofuels and more, we're also going to talk about everybody's favorite superhero, Mr. Elon Musk. In addition to that, we're going to talk about the things that Amazon is currently up to. What are they doing? Is it energy related? All that and more is going to come. Yes, Jeff, and more. Don't worry, we'll do 20 minutes of collective Googling so you don't have to. And uh, find out what kind of Trumpocalypse is about to befall the EPA. So, stay with us. to Watts Radio. If you've missed any Watts Radio episodes, make sure to check them out on the web at wattsradio.org. All the best in energy and climate news. Yes, dally, if you will, on the website for a while and check it out. So, uh, Hanj, what's going on in the world of energy? Well, as always, Jeff, I'm amped about current events in energy. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited. As like, always. As always. So this week, Jeff, um I heard that there was some news about uh a man of the island. 
are you are you talking about Iron Man? I am. Oh, Elon Musk. Elon Musk, my favorite superhero. Yes. Um, so if you haven't seen, uh, you know, there's some some things today, some market reports kind of coming out. Basically, I was reading about Tesla is just killing it. Um, they are the leading luxury sedan. Um, they are the mid- leading midsize SUV uh, in their market class. And basically, they're they're really dominating. Um, if you if you look at their sales compared to some of the the conventional Mercedes and BMW um, in their class, they're actually just blowing them out of the water. And so um, they've really taken over the market. I mean, they are not a small company anymore, really, in the U.S. as far as their market share in these luxury cars. And so I think the real question is, can they uh, sustain? So that's what we've been asking. Yeah, I mean, at, at the same time that, you know, there's all this great news about Tesla, there's also been some less than great news about them. Um, they've been having some issues with their uh, launch date for the Model 3. That's getting pushed back. And there's there's talk on the street about um, whether or not they're going to be able to ever uh, turn profit. There's also a lot of uncertainty now with uh, Donald Trump uh, as president and what he's going to do or not do to support electric vehicles. So there's starting to be talk of uncertainty amidst all the successes that Tesla has had. Um, So really, 2017 could be the year of the electric car or not. And that is a valid concern. But you know what? One thing Tesla has been doing well at is selling credits Credits that they earn through policies designed to incentivize the uptake of and the development of electric vehicles in the U.S. Um, and these credits refer to both uh, the California's ZEV policy as well as the uh, CAFE standards at the national level, level which um, seek to increase the efficiency of vehicle new vehicle sales to 54.5 miles per gallon by 2025. Now, what's interesting about all this, Jeff, and, the, and Tesla, the reason I'm segueing, I know it seems like a long one to go, I'm sorry, but... EPA, the EPA administrator, okay, this week, announced that she was going to close the review on the mobile source GHG standards, basically, the ones that President Obama set that were supposed to be under review until June, which would have been after the inauguration. And she decided she was going to close the review period and make a determination that the rules are fine and that they should stay in place until 2025. Whoa, 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 whoa. So, I mean, that was just a lot of jargon. That's really confusing. So... Well, let's let's back up a little bit. So the Environmental Protection Agency, um, they're responsible for, um, or at least in part, they're responsible for um, the efficiency of vehicles on the road. And so they've had a standard or um, under consideration and review to limit the grams of carbon dioxide uh, emitted from a tailpipe per mile of travel. And this was standardized... Um, with uh, another organization that sets um, efficiency on a mile per gallon basis. Um, And so basically the EPA has sped up the review process so that we can lock into place efficiency standards for vehicles because there was some concern perhaps that under a Trump presidency, we wouldn't be trying to make vehicles more efficient any longer. Indeed. And so also on the California level, it turns out that policy is looking to stay in place um, and, you know, get locked down because I think what we're seeing is actually a lot of reaction to uh, sort of try to sort of lock in on goals and achievements that have been made during the uh, previous administration and, uh, and, and, well, brace for the best, I guess. And speaking of bracing for the best. Trumpocalypse, maybe not going to happen. We had some great news this week. 
um, which was Al Gore, famous for an inconvenient truth and, you know, being president but then not actually going to the office. Hanging um, chads. Yeah, hanging chads. Hanging out with Chad. Um, so Al Gore, really uh, famous for his climate change action and his PowerPoint presentation that went viral <laughs> before that was a thing. Um, so uh, he, he met with Al Gore. Origi- or he met with uh, Donald Trump. Originally, he was only supposed to meet with Donald's daughter, uh, Ivanka, who has taken an interest in climate change because, you know, she'll be around when she'll start seeing some effects, whereas Donald will be dead. Um, and so Al Gore was going to meet with her and talk to her about climate change. The most vulnerable part of the Earth's ecological system is the atmosphere. And then... By God, he ended up meeting with Trump himself. And it was most of the time that was set aside for this meeting ended up being with uh, the president-elect. And so, you know, Al Gore came out after the meeting saying, you know, it went really well. And everyone was like, oh, my God, that's really exciting. Maybe there's a possibility that Donald Trump is going to go back on what he previously said, which was climate change is a hoax perpetrated by the Chinese to make uh, American manufacturing less competitive. Um And so we were hopeful. And maybe that was true at one time, but it's not anymore. And then our hope was immediately dashed. Yep, up against the rocks. You know, I'm convinced that Ivanka, as a child of the 90s, grew up on South Park and uh, saw, um, you know, Al Gore um, as a character uh, there and and idolized him and thought, oh, you know, this guy's great. And, um, well... You know, I don't think that, uh, I don't think even, even the great Al Gore, and I hope he came with his PowerPoint in tow, Jeff. I really do. I hope he, I hope he showed up with a PowerPoint. Like I'm, that's what I, I just, in my mind, that's what I was hoping for. Um, you know, I don't think he could even sway Mr. Trump. Yeah, I know Trump had already picked a climate skeptic to head the transition team, obviously for the EPA. And now he's named his, uh, he's not, he's, he's named his nominee, um, to be the administrator, um, Scott Pruitt, who is the attorney general in Oklahoma. Um, is a notable um, friend of the oil and gas industry. He's accepted, uh, I think I saw something today, like $325,000 from the uh, oil and gas lobby in the most recent um, turn. He is um, a winner, Jeff, a real winner. Yeah, he's a real winner at uh, perpetrating lawsuits against the EPA. Um, So he is one of the uh, key folks that has been pushing the lawsuit against the Environmental Protection Agency's Clean Power Plan, which was climate regulation against uh, electric utilities. Um, And so he used the one that was suing the EPA saying you can't really do this. And now he's going to be heading up the EPA, um, which is really just great. Uh, So, I mean, that's maybe a slight conflict of interest there. Um, But, you know, that means... Pretty much the EPA is done for now with really doing things that can um, impact climate change. Uh, so, so California still exists California. and will continue to try to confront climate change on our own. Sixth largest economy in the world. Maybe going to break away, not probably from the U.S. Sorry, California. Actually, India is taking the lead. India just we just opened the biggest so, the largest solar power plant in the world. Um, so, you know, California, you're going to have to we're going to have to get on it. But um, they just became they just opened a 650 megawatt facility um, in the southern part of the country. Uh, it's called uh, which actually just which which beat the Topaz solar farm um, that's in SoCal um, by a full 100 megawatts. Um, so this is a this is a big plant. So to put that in perspective, that's about the size of a large coal power plant. Um, 
in capacity. So, you know, we've just now, uh, with one solar plant installation um, at 680 megawatts, that's about the equivalent capacity of a coal power plant. Of course, the sun doesn't always shine, whereas you can't always burn coal, so they're not fully comparable. Well, you're right, Jeff. But speaking of fossil fuels, let's move right on to our friends in Canada. Canada, like the Mexico of the North. Um, yes, Jeff. In Canada, they have much um, oil, but the oil is oh, tight. I, I didn't. I didn't realize they had oil up there. Wait, wait, wait. So when we talk about importing foreign oil to the U.S., we're not talking about Canada, are we? Um, well, it depends. If you want to talk about national security, no, you're not. Um, but if you are talking about just oil we use, then yes, you are, because actually our biggest um, source of an imported oil is Canada. Um, and as I was saying, the oil up there is tight. Um, it is tightly bound, that is, uh, within the soil and the sand. Um, and that is what gives rise to such things as tar sand. Tar sand. So tar sand is, just imagine oil in sand, really heavy moving, and you don't really want to burn oil that's gritty and has all this aggregate material in it, so you need to separate it. So the best way to separate things is to use a lot of heat, a lot of energy, a lot of water, and you know, probably just like club a couple of baby seals because why not? Um, but so uh, in Canada, in the tar sand region, they're spending a ton of energy, therefore a ton of carbon dioxide emissions to get this oil out. Um, and, you know, it's been fairly effective. Uh, it's driving the economy in Alberta. And um, so that's, that's something that's going on. But recently, Canada has also been pretty active on the climate front. Um, they've just announced that they're going to start pursuing a policy at a national level that's pretty similar to California's low carbon fuel standard, which regulates the greenhouse gas emissions in the transportation sector. So you kind of get this interesting scenario where California or where Canada is going to be regulating greenhouse gas emissions out of their fuel, while at the same time shipping the heaviest, most carbon intensive oil elsewhere across the world. So Canada, we'll see what happens. Canada. I'm 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 confident that Canada's going to be okay, Jeff. But you know, if anybody, if you've ever been to Alberta, I'm sure you know that uh, it ain't pretty anymore. Um, <clears throat> speaking of power, Jeff, um, I was reading this week that uh, Texas hit a new milestone this week: uh, wind power now 15 percent in the Arcot region. Um, so, for those of you who don't know, um, we have three major interconnects in the continental United States. An interconnect is an area in which power can be sold or transferred, basically, um, with some amount of freedom, uh, meaning that there is sufficient transmission capability, uh, e.g. power lines, um, between different locations to sell power. Um, those three major interconnects cover the eastern and western United States, and the other one covers Texas. It's because Texas has to do everything by themselves. So Texas, at 15% wind in the Texas grid, right, it's not really connected to the other grids, um, that means that Texas, not like Germany or the Netherlands or somewhere else, has like the highest penetration at a grid level of wind energy, um, which is pretty amazing that, you know, our, our conservative friends in Texas that are really big oil guys actually are some of the most competitive when it comes to renewable energy penetration on the grid. 
It's true. And Texas went long on wind way back in the day. And they actually have been, you know, I guess, reaping the uh, the rewards there. And speaking of um, long-term investments in power, Jeff, nuclear. Nuke-yaller? No, no, no. Nuclear. Um, so Illinois, they have a lot of nuclear energy. Um, I believe it makes up something like 50% of their electricity comes from nuclear facilities. And as the fleet ages, um, there's an incentive to start shutting these down um, or to not renew their uh, permits to operate. Um, And so with cheap natural gas in the market, it's been displacing um, coal aggressively. It also means that nuclear plants are no longer that profitable to stay in operation. Um, And that's bad if you care about climate change because nuclear power is one of the very few resources we have that operates at scale that's built today that can provide a effectively zero carbon source of power. Um, so maybe if we don't want to be building new nuclear plants, at the very least, if we care about climate change, we should probably work to keep some of our nuclear plants open. And cheap natural gas has made that really difficult. So recently, New York has passed some policies that create a small incentive for nuclear power plants to stay open. And now um, in Illinois, they're doing something pretty similar to try and prevent a lot of their aging nuclear plants from closing down because they realize if it does, if their plants do start closing down, they're bringing in more fossil fuels, which means a lot more carbon emissions for that region. Mm-hmm. And you know what? It's not just about climate emissions when we bring more fossil fuels in, particularly coal. Realize that you know these things have significant local environmental impacts in the site of generation they destroy local environments where the where the fuel is mined they destroy local environments where the power is produced there is no such thing as clean coal and um you know i think actually at least for me uh i feel like we we maybe spend a little too much time focused on uh the climate argument and i i am going to crusade the local environmental impact again because i think um you know, it's worth it's worth saying. So that being said, and thinking about you know thinking about the environment, uh, the local environment. Well, I'm going to say the domestic environment. Um, President, uh, soon to be ex president, thanks Obama, um, is rushing to secure his environmental legacy. Um, and we were mentioning some some you know possible Trumpocalypse earlier, but maybe this is the the ray of Obama hope. Um, you know, Obama's rushing to uh, cancel oil and gas leases. Um, he's suspended suspending drilling in the Arctic. Um, they've they've only issued three Gulf drilling permits for the new section. They just restricted uh, thirty thousand acres uh, or mining on thirty thousand acres near the entrance of Yellowstone. And um, I guess you know the question is, can it stick? Um, you know, it takes a bit of time for these things to kind of play through. He, uh, Trump can't come in necessarily, or any administration can't necessarily come in and completely uh, undo the previous administration's work with the swipe of a pen. But, um, you know, in certain cases, uh, there's a moratorium on um, drilling leases in the Gulf that expires uh, within the time that uh, President Donald will be in office. And, um, you know, who knows how much Russia just might be moving into the Arctic uh, in our absence. Um, So stay tuned. Um, There's a couple more things that have been happening in the world, in the the tech world. So um, we always think that the Internet is the fastest possible way to move information. It turns out 
good old automobiles might be a little bit faster when it comes to moving data and information around. So Amazon has unveiled a server on wheels. That's right, rather than having a server that's connected to fiber optics, they're moving stuff around the old-fashioned way with some internal combustion engines. Um, so the size of the firm cloud database has ballooned in recent years. Terabytes are quickly becoming petabytes and exabytes, and who knows what comes after that. Um, and you can't really transfer this at networks. Um, whereas you can put a lot of the storage into one location, um, put it on wheels, and truck it somewhere. And the speed at which you can truck this, all this data contained in a large, you know, semi... Uh, truck bed um, and get it to another location to deliver it is faster than you could possibly do if you had a really big dedicated fiber optic cable. These The time it takes to transfer these data sources are actually quite staggering, Jeff. Um, in order to transfer the size of uh, a company's database um which which actually is getting given which is actually getting into this like you know hundreds of petabytes um which is an insane insane number takes years at at like the fastest internet like at the 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 best place you ever go that you've ever had internet in your life that place it would take years for that place to transfer this much information so this truck literally holds um you know like like 10 of those and then it takes like uh it basically takes uh it cuts it down by months so instead of it taking several months you can transfer it within a month um because you can just drive it across the country <laughs> which is pretty amazing and soon you know we'll have driverless autonomous vehicles out there just moving data to you you know so before long rather than like downloading something on the internet you can just go back to Netflix, right? Where you where you got stuff delivered to you because that could be faster than downloading it. Mm -hmm. And I love buying things on Amazon, Jeff. I know you do too. Um, I heard that soon that they'll be giving me my food as well. That's right. So Amazon just announced a weird pilot store, a grocery store, the grocery store of the future, um, which allows you to walk in and walk out without ever needing to interact with a human being to check out your grocery store purchases. Um, so the implications on this are probably fairly big uh, if it ends up panning out, which means you get to automate everybody out of grocery store jobs. Um, it also means that they're moving back to a weird kind of model for retail store operations, um, which actually is an important thing because the energy and emissions utilized for shipping packages around to people is becoming increasingly substantial, right? For any individual's carbon footprint, the number of goods they're now like ordering and buying, it's starting to consume a substantial portion of their overall energy budget. That's an excellent research question, Jeff. Okay, Jeff, in the last in last thing about Amazon, um, in that maybe things I want to buy on Amazon, um, I was reading about a, a pretty cool battery. Uh, you know I like batteries. Um, this battery is radioactive, uh, but don't be scared. Um, it seems like it's pretty benign. Um, but basically, it's made from post-consumer waste. So that's pretty cool. Um, what it is really is a radioactive material that's been encased in a diamond. Okay, And it's actually radioactive diamond, and then it's coated with another layer of carbon. So this is radioactive carbon coated with regular old carbon. Carbon comes in lots of flavors, uh, in case you didn't know that. And um, basically, this thing um, puts out um, 
uh, several millivolts, uh, I think, uh, per gram. And um, it's actually a pretty decent amount of energy output, I think, um, from the size of it. Um, and uh, uh, it runs for, well, half-life. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Um, so we have been using radioactive batteries for a while. Um, many of our NASA um, satellites that go out for deep exploration use radioactive batteries. And in super cold in, uh, weather climates like in Antarctica, um, we often have to use radio ba radioactive batteries as well just because it becomes really cold. So chemical reactions sometimes have issues and it's also hard to keep charge for different technologies. Um, but it's really cool that this is made out of post-consumer waste. So who knows? Maybe there's a lot of cool stuff in the technology pipeline. Cool stuff. You know what else is in the pipeline, Jeff? What's in the pipeline? Christmas. Oh, Christmas. Christmas. I love Christmas. It's so good. How wonderful. Holidays. It's it's another t it's yet another uh, reason to go and procure yourself some more Amazon packages. I hear sleigh bells ringing. Jeff, I found the greatest Christmas article ever. Oh, yeah? Tell yeah. me more. Okay. So there's a Finnish energy company that has devised a plan to create renewable fuel using leftover Christmas dinners. Wow. Do people eat enough food to create any substantial amount of energy? Um, I am pretty skeptical, but uh, I read several articles about this. Uh, it's a revolutionary anti-waste campaign. Um, it has several continents. In, it has lots of consonants in it. Kinketumpu. Kinketumpu. Oh, okay. Maybe. Or ham trick. Let's go with that. So the ham trick. The um, ham trick. It will take unwanted fat from your Christmas hams donated by Finnish households and convert it into renewable diesel at the company's Porvu refinery. So that's pretty cool. Renewable diesel from leftover waste. That sounds like the dream. That is Back to the Future, Mr. Fusion, today. Yep, Mr. Fusion today. Actually, so these experts at the Nest, the company that, that hosts the campaign, they say that they, you from uh, the waste fat from roasting a single joint of ham can be converted into approximately two miles worth of fuel for a car, and that they're expecting almost seven million kilograms of cooked ham in Finland for each Christmas. Uh, so this is quite, quite a bit of fuel. That just seems wonderfully delightful. So... And on that note, I think we're going to put on some great listening tunes. And when we come back, we're going to talk about information embargoes. So stick around.
Good morning, and welcome back to Watts Radio. If you've missed any Watts Radio episodes, we have them available for your listening leisure. Do we have to say it again, Joe? Yeah, we do. Why? Well, because we need to inform people that our episodes are available on wattsradio.org. Are they, Jeff? They are. So point, click if you wish, and you can download it and listen to it whenever you want. Here, Jeff. Welcome back to Watts Radio. Welcome back. So today on Watts Radio, we're doing 20 minutes of collective Googling. That's where me and Hanj explore a topic that we know absolutely nothing about, and we try to find out something about it using the internet. Yes, it's basically where Jeff and I spend 10 minutes each or 20 minutes collectively Googling something interesting so you can or don't have to in that moment and tell you as much as we know about it after we do. Um, This week, uh, I read a word um, that uh, uh, I thought I knew, and then I realized I didn't know, and so we Googled it. And that word is embargoes. Embargo. So I'm sure we've heard about embargoes that, you know, it's it's a tactic used by foreign governments to try and make them go democratic or something, right? We had an embargo against Cuba, which prevented us from exporting products over to them. Or uh, buying cigars. Or buying cigars. Um, no, that was a boycott. Uh, and so, so we've heard of embargoes for that. But for embargoes, th- there's all sorts of embargoes. There's informational and knowledge embargoes. And that's where you prevent information and knowledge from getting out until a defined period of time. And so I had no idea that these were a really big thing, but um, newspapers specifically um, get embargoed a lot, which is if there's some, I don't know, major important news story, a scientific discovery, or some major outcome that's going to happen to a company, then whoever is involved with that will release information to the newspaper and put an embargo on it. That way the newspaper has time to do some more background research and to write a fuller story before the actual information is made public. And so the information is embargoed. Right. And uh, embargoes are become, they you know, while they, they may serve some purpose to, um, you know, help, uh, help consolidate information or at least present, you know, correct information to a dissemination uh, to a different audience. Um, they become kind of point of place in a lot of places you might be ex- um, that might be unexpected. And that that system itself has become a bit of a problem. So it turns out that in the case of academic research and scientific research, that um, there's these there's gradually through consolidation formed these giant clearinghouses, and there's only a few of them. And these clearinghouses act as sort of one-stop repositories for news about new science. And this new and these news sources become um, basically really important sources for journalists, right? Um, so journalists will go to this, you know, one place, um, you know, that uh, many, many scientific journals um, participate in, and it's like acts as a clearinghouse for what they really has new exciting information and the journalists will get be able to request uh, or get um, uh, uh, pre-publication copies of research in exchange for um, uh, not talking about it and and while this maybe doesn't seem like a huge issue uh, maybe it's protecting the authors from this kind of you know getting scooped or something what it prevents journalists and other sources and any type of interested person from doing is conducting further research on it is it it, it prevents them from really 
asking a lot of people about it from, you know, getting expert, soliciting expert opinion. Um, and I think that the danger, at least what I saw, maybe what's really interesting about embargoes in the academic circle was that, uh, you know, there might be this way in which um, this kind of has a chilling effect on um, uh, the ability of uh, uh, journalists and other authors to interrogate and uh, cr- think critically about new news that they receive. So also in the academic world of embargoes, there's this new thing that's occurring, which is journals that publish uh, authors' work are embargoing the authors, which is to say the authors are not allowed to make their papers publicly available and open access them until a given amount of time. So embargoes are becoming really big within the open access scientific world, um, which is interesting because there are universities like the University of California that now make it so that all research done with public dollars is publicly accessible, right? So the universities are saying this is now a requirement. And so the university system has sort of accomplished this by creating repositories of research kind of in its pre-finalized stage that is publicly accessible where you can download that research. Um, So I know the Institute of Transportation Studies at Davis has a large repository of all their research that you can download before it's uh, necessarily in the journal, or it's not quite the final copy. Um, And so a lot of journals now, there's kind of this arms race where they're embargoing authors and saying, you can either pay us the $1,500 and we'll open access the journal, the article for you, or you can wait 24 months and then you can go through this process. Um, And so they've, they've been increasing the duration of time, the embargo period, for authors of their work to post it publicly. Um, And I I mean, now there's this pushback that, well, authors can publish it on their own websites, and then you get into issues where things like um, ResearchGate and a couple other um, repositories out there that are containing the author's personal submissions. And so there's this interesting dynamic going on between journals trying to keep their own proprietary rights to articles and with the scientific community recognizing that publicly funded research should be publicly accessible. Um, and so it's kind of curious to see how that's going to play out in the next couple of decades. Indeed. And I think another thing that I saw that was interesting about these these information embargoes um, was, and maybe potentially troubling, was the use of them by government agencies. Um, so here what we have is now uh, certain government agencies, including the USDA and the FDA, have attempted to make use of embargoes uh, against journalists and other type and other uh, inform- in- interested parties about um, prospective announcements or news, um, which once again, you know, uh, is interesting because, it, you know, we're talking about an agency that's about to make a public decision or is going to release some public, you know, eventually is operating in the public interest. And, you know, if there's an embargo on the information, what what is what is it that whose interest is being protected um, by that embargo against information? Um, and uh, I think that, you know, what we're trying what the in the interest of controlling messaging, you know, I think what we're having is um, uh, doing a really a real disservice to, you know, um, investigation um, generally. Uh, and, and I guess maybe, you know, it, it's like I'm not too worried about it right now. I mean, I guess it's like not a huge deal and maybe it's okay, but these types of measures um, could be easily abused. 
Uh, and and when you have a change of administration or you have new people in power, you know, and you have these types of tech, these type of tactics already being taken, um, my concern is that you start to have a lot of abuse. You have to start. You start to have people that say, "Who can know?" Um, I'm sorry, you know, we we won't talk to these newspapers because um, they we don't, uh, you know, they didn't respect our embargo or they aren't willing to agree to the terms of what they can release, um, which usually becomes basically talking points. So with that said, I think we're done with our 20 minutes of collective Googling on embargoes. And when we come back, we're going to talk with Dr. Nathan Parker about biofuels. Hi, I'm Nathan Parker. I'm a research professor at the Arizona State University, and I uh, study biofuels and alternative energy for vehicles. So um, biofuel, I mean, that's that's a term that's maybe not that familiar for most of our listeners out there. Um, so, so biofuel, I get the idea that it's a fuel made from biological organisms. Do we actually use any biofuels today? We do. Uh, about 10% of the fuel in your gasoline is going to be, by volume, is going to be uh, ethanol. And that's a biofuel from either from corn or sugarcane. Uh, so those are kind of the largest scale. But we also have some biofuels in biodiesel, uh, running diesel vehicles. That's uh, a smaller percentage of the total. There's also uh, some small, tiny fraction of renewable methane that's being used in C- CNG vehicles. Why aren't we seeing more biofuels if there's just, you know, we can make them from any waste source? Well, so the problem is there's not a ton. I mean, so there's, there is waste. There's a lot of waste out there that you could turn into fuels. Um, but if you turned all of the waste into fuels, you'd only have like 15% of the U.S. transportation fuel demand. Um, it's off the top of my head. Could be slightly, slightly high. Uh, but the other, the biggest problem is that it costs a lot of money to go from a nasty waste source of biological material and get it into a uh, high-quality fuel that people are willing to put into their expensive vehicles. How much does this stuff cost? I mean, are we talking like, you know, pennies on the dollar? Is it is it slightly more expensive than our conventional fuels? I mean, um, is it, you know, instead of paying two fifty for a gallon of gasoline, would we maybe be paying two fifty four for a gallon of gasoline? Or are we talking like a difference of like, Ten dollars per gallon. Like, is is this stuff just around the corner, or is it a major barrier? Corn ethanol, which is widely available, uh, is slightly more expensive to produce, depending on uh, the market for corn. So, if there's a high demand for corn, high price of corn, uh, your your cost of ethanol is going to be higher than your cost of gasoline. But with the ethanol market, it kind of drives, does a little bit of driving what the corn price is as well, um, based on what the oil price is. So it gets kind of complicated there. But uh, for the other sources of biofuels that are more interesting for their environmental benefits, uh, the waste sources, they're uh, biodiesels, Four to six dollars a gallon instead of two, uh, and then if you're going into some of these larger scale resources that you could get to, they're more in the eight to ten at the moment, I would guess, if you would actually build them. Um, so people aren't building them. So if they cost so much more money, why would we use them? Do they really produce a significant? I mean, could we get some big environmental benefit from using them? Do we really decrease the carbon intensity of vehicle travel by using biofuels? That is a matter of debate. 
Uh, and once again, it will be depend on which types that you're talking about. And sadly, in that case, often the ones that cost less are the ones that don't give you the most uh, carbon reductions. The ones that will cost more may give you carbon reductions. So the so that, so waste sources often look best for for giving carbon uh, carbon benefits. And in those cases, the alternative fate. So what else would happen? Um, with the material uh, can be environmentally unattractive. Why does anyone want to use biofuel? So there's there's a bunch of different reasons why people are ever interested in it. So um, there's a fairly decent argument that uh, the, a big interest in biofuels has been historically to uh, soak up the excess production of corn in this country or sugar in in Brazil, a market that, that basically provides a, a good uh, source of income for farmers. So that's one side. So there's one side is of rural development, but there also are, there's potential for, for benefits of greenhouse gas reductions in that if you displace a fossil fuel where the your carbon you're digging out of the ground, burning and releasing the carbon into the atmosphere, whereas with biofuels, uh, in theory, you are growing a plant which is uh, bringing in carbon uh, while it's while it's growing, and then you convert it to a fuel, and then you burn it and re-release the carbon out back out into the atmosphere. So there's a circle, a cycle there that uh, will come out to be a net zero in theory. Um, in practice, you have to consider what else could happen with the land. So it sounds like you know if you're growing a plant. And it's consuming CO2, and then you, you create biofuel from it, um, you, you get this net zero effect for carbon. Um, so are biofuels then carbon neutral, um, or, is, or is there something more to the story? Uh, there's definitely a lot more to the story. It can get rather complicated. So uh, simplistically, there's when you grow the, uh, the plant for, for producing biofuels, you are often using fertilizers, you're using farming equipment, you're, you're burning fuel um, in the process of, of, of producing the, the fuel. And so you have some, you have to take into account the, the net uh, energy of that system. So you're, you're, you, you have to put energy in to, to produce the fuel, produce the biomass to then produce the fuel. And you have to look at the whole life cycle and see what you have to discount off of that. Uh, in addition, there's what is going on with the land. So uh, this this land is not being created at, at random for production of fuel, uh, biofuels. And so the 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 land would be doing something else if you were not growing uh, biomass uh, for energy on it. And what it you have an opportunity cost of what are you losing? What what kind of value of carbon are you losing in that? And then in, and when you change the use of land, um, you can have uh, big impacts with releasing of soil carbon. So in Malaysia, where they have uh, planted a lot of palm oil plantations for producing uh, palm oil, uh, somewhat for use for, for biofuels, the, the land use change uh, has Cause a, a large release of carbon from the from the soils there, and that can easily negate the carbon savings from displacing of a fossil fuel. So, um, 
biofuel. There, there sounds like then it's not certain if it's good for the environment or bad for the environment. Um, so what what should we do? Are biofuels a good idea? Well, so the, the some of them are, I would say, uh, and some of them aren't. And then the rest of them are a really good research question, which makes it kind of questionable whether we should be doing a large-scale production of them. It seems like uh, not only does this biofuel piece have a lot of questionable environmental benefits, kind of questionable economics behind it, um, I kind of wonder, you know, um, I, I don't know if you've heard this, but recently we had a national election. I know you're not a political guy per se, but, but uh, uh, we had a new president elected. Um, his name is, is, is Donald Trump. And he doesn't necessarily share the same types of um, beliefs in climate change that many uh, scientists do. And, uh, and my, my thought is kind of like, well, um, what, do you, I mean, what do you think is going to change with biofuels maybe in a new administration? And, and, and also, um, what do you think about these kind of strategies that may or may not have payback um, in, an, in a time when we might have less collective budget? Uh, for uh, trying new ideas? Well, I can't really make too much of a guess of what Donald Trump might do. Um, seems to be a bit of a wild card. Uh, but so for the for the renewable fuel standard, which is the big federal policy related to this, there are others though um, that are important for the, for the development of biofuels. Uh, I would expect that he will, that the EPA will not pull uh, support for existing facilities in rural America and kind of ruin small economies um, because that just doesn't fit with the uh, the political support that he's ga gathered. Um, but for uh, whether there will be a big push for growth in the cellulosics that have not grown at this point. Uh, I don't. I don't see why that there would be a big a big push for for in anything above what's been happening, um, which is basically the EPA looks at what has happened in the last year and projects whether the companies are actually going to produce anything, and then says our our target is what we. What people think they can produce, and that seems like a relatively—it's uh, its an annoying policy, but it doesn't really do much. I don't think it moves the needle for anybody. So I don't know that it—I mean, it annoys people. So maybe it'll get get chopped off, uh, but I don't see it as a, as really a big problematic thing that it'll get attacked. But well, I can't really make too much of a guess of what Donald Trump might do. Um, seems to be a bit of a wild card. But so for the for the renewable fuel standard, which is the big federal policy related to this, there are others though um, that are important for the for the development of biofuels. Uh, I would expect that he will that the EPA will not pull uh, support for existing facilities in rural America that kind of ruin small economies um, because that just doesn't fit with the uh, the political support that he's ga gathered. Um, 
but for uh, whether there will be a big push for growth in the cellulosics that have not grown at this point, uh, I don't. I don't see why that there would be a big a big push for for in anything above what's been happening, um, which is basically the EPA looks at what has happened in the last year and projects whether the companies are actually going to produce anything, and then says our our target is what we. Th- what people think they can produce. It's a no, it's an annoying policy, but it doesn't really do much. I don't think it moves the needle for anybody. So I don't know that it, I mean, it annoys people. So maybe it'll get, get chopped off. Uh, but I don't see it as a, as really a big problematic thing that it'll get attacked. You know what else is real, Nathan? What's real? I Elon Musk. <laughs> and, and as Iron Man says, uh, electric vehicles are going to change the world. And I kind of wonder, I mean, you know, we've heard you're hearing we're hearing some mixed bags about the economics and the environmental benefits of these biofuels. And, you know, Elon Musk is coming for you. He's gunning for you with his big electric cars. Um, Do you think, you know, with all your expertise in biofuels that maybe we should just stick with electrification? Electrification is great. There are places where places within the transportation system where electrification is unlikely to work as well. Um, such as aviation, and in those cases, you are there. The best best idea is that we need some kind of liquid fuel that can burn at high energy, high energy density, um, that can be low carbon, and that's where we think the limited good biofuel should probably go. Of course, that is not ethanol because you're not burning ethanol in jet fuels, jet engines either. Um, you'd have to convert that to a, a more of a jet uh, type jet fuel. A different composition of of uh, chemicals, um, so that's you know once again adds cost, but it's more plausible than electrification in in in, uh, in airplanes, to my knowledge. I I always hear about Willie Nelson riding around the country in his bus, running on French fry oil from uh, you know fast food chains and restaurants. Um, that sounds good. It sounds like a really good thing to be able to like pull up to you know a Denny's or an Arby's or whatever, load up on a bucket of grease and power your uh, you know your tour bus around. Like is is that a bad thing? Does that suffer from the same consequences that maybe corn ethanol does? Or is that not the sort of activity we want to promote? Uh, old rockers moving around in uh, French fry or grease buses. I think that's kind of, I mean, we, we want to promote some of that, you know, they, they, what else are you, gonna, so, so what, the question is what else is going to happen with that, uh, that waste grease, the old French fry oil, um, and at some point it used to go to landfills, uh, now you can collect it and make biodiesel out of it, and that's a better, better use, uh, there's, I mean, everything is, gets complicated when you talk to a professor. So <laughs> there are some pros and cons that within with, with biodiesel for air quality emissions um, coming out of the, those tour buses. And, uh, but you can also make uh, renewable diesel out of it too, which is a, a, a higher quality diesel fuel made out of the same material. You know, I at least became interested in biofuels when I saw Back to the Future. <laughs> And, um, of course, when uh, Mr. Fusion was used to power the DeLorean. Uh, and um, I wonder, when did you become excited about biofuels, Nathan? Well, I could say it's still waiting. But the one thing, so and this gets at the 
something that I that, that that's kind of strange about this. But I, the reason I still am working in biofuels um, after all this time is I, the thing that intrigued me about biofuels is that there's this large space um, and a pretty big heterogeneity variety of uh, impacts and outcomes uh, depending on all kinds of things. And so it's really a complex question and 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 it's an important policy question at least it, when I got I got interested in it when the RFS came out and the California low carbon fuel standard came out and it seemed like people didn't understand it well enough and so uh, I got interested in trying to figure it out so are are there clear I guess winners in the biofuel space that anyone can point to? Are there definite things that we should be doing? I mean, it's been roughly nine ten years since we started on biofuel policy. Clearly, research have, has yielded some results on this front. Can we point to successes in the biofuel game, or what we should do going forward? I think there's some successes. So there's uh, putting landfill gas in garbage trucks, running running your garbage trucks on on garbage. That's a pretty big win, I think. Uh, some of the biodiesels uh, are from waste sources uh, and waste fats. Uh, are, are also looking very attractive. Given that you're doing corn ethanol, some of the corn oil off of that to make biodiesel, um, some using the, the fiber, the cellulosic portion of, of the corn to increase the yields, but that, that's just mostly that's, you know, that's making corn ethanol better, um, which is definitely a win um, if you're doing it anyway. But, uh, and there's a lot of stuff that's to be seen. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's, a, there's quite a number of bankrupt companies and, and projects that have uh, come and gone in the last nine years. Homesteading, dude. Yeah. Homesteading. Fuel steading. Um, so so uh, I guess we have this hesitancy or reservation about biofuel as being really environmentally beneficial. It's complicated. It's a good research question. Uh, we shouldn't go you know, full throttle in supporting the stuff, and we need to pause and reflect. Um, however, is it, uh, is it different for biofuel in that case than it is for other technologies, right? Like hydrogen vehicles we've heard about, and that seems to go in and out of the spotlight, or even electric vehicles. There's been uh, some studies out from the Union of Concerned Scientists and other groups that say, if you buy an electric vehicle, it's not creating carbon benefits, right? So it seems like there's this level of uncertainty across all transportation technologies. Is this something unique to biofuel that makes it complicated? Or is like transportation in general, just decarbonizing it, is that just complicated and difficult? So if I were to buy an electric vehicle in my fine state of Arizona where I now live, it would not be a good carbon benefit because of all the fine coal power that I have. Uh, yeah, you could, I could get away with – I could change that by putting solar panels all over my house, but um, <laughs> charging off because I have a lot of sun. But um, so what's the difference between biofuels and these other hydrogen or electricity as a – as a final fuel product. And I think that's in the, the long run outlook for biofuels doesn't change a huge amount uh, because of productivity of, of, of land uh, and how, how much you can actually grow and produce biofuels. Because I, I really do think the most 
attractive biofuels and ones that don't have many regrets to them are these are waste for resources and there's just not a whole ton of them. And if, once you start using a lot of land, you get into issues. Um, whereas hydrogen and electricity, your issues come with the fact that you're going to be using fossil fuels uh, in the near term to fuel to actually provide the the primary fuel, and as um, as you get a end product of electricity or hydrogen, you can change the upstream and decarbonize the upstream, and then you get out of the out of the problems with it. Uh, if I wanted to make my own fuel, okay, let's say I don't drive too much, right? <laughs> okay, but how much how much land do I need? I mean, could I do it? Is there a way that we could, I mean, is there even a feasible thing? If I was Warren Buffett, do I need a state? Can I do it with, you know, dozens of acres? Uh, is there some, is there some footprint for a personal, like an eco footprint for a personal biofuel use? If you're in the Central Valley, um, if you had an acre of land, you could probably drive about 7,000 miles on corn ethanol. Uh, you could get probably like 3,000 miles on a soy biodiesel. Uh, or you could get 30,000 miles if you grew a switch grass or you grew a grass and turned it to hydrogen or electricity. If you put, grew some miscanthus, you could probably get more like 50,000 miles. Um, so you, on an acre. So you can get some decent mileage out of an acre. Now, Nathan, I've seen The Matrix, okay? And in the future, the robots do power their machines from human bodies. So that makes me think that I could potentially power a vehicle with human gas. Has there been, have there been any studies of this? Do you know? Is this a great opportunity? Will you research this for me, please? I will not. I am, uh, well, I could, lo- I could look into it, but uh, I think the, the, the answer is... Sadly, with many biomass questions, the resource is not enough to do the job. And on that sobering note, thank you very much, Nathan.